Hey everybody, this is Jeff Friedman. Welcome to my podcast where we talk about improv comedy, the history of Jewish humor, and trauma in comedy. On today's episode, we have novelist Jonathan Lethem, who is professor of English and creative writing at Pomona College. I've gotten the chance to be Jonathan's student a couple different times now, and I've been curious to know if he has any relationship to the subjects of my podcast. He has some really interesting stuff to say about it. Here is Jonathan Lethem. First of all, um, you told me in your email to me that you're a poor excuse for a Jew. (laughs) And I was wondering what that means. Well, you know, I grew up in New York City. And uh, by that standard, uh, I didn't in some ways feel Jewish at all. My my family was... uh, there was a Jewish residue. My, my mother, uh, was, was Jewish by heritage, but she was not only a secular, uh, you know, specifically atheistic person, but she was second generation secular atheistic. My grandmother had kind of chosen Marxism over Judaism. And uh, there was a lot of torment and guilt about that as would be appropriate for a a Jew renouncing the faith of her fathers. But it was really, by the time it trickled down to me, it was ironclad. And on the other side, my father was a Protestant from the Midwest, and he was spiritual, and he led me into Quaker practice. I grew up going to Sunday school. And, you know, so any number of other identifications felt much more tangible and real to me uh, than than that I happened to be in some oblique way Jewish. I was from a leftist family. I was a Quaker. I was a New Yorker. Uh, I was an artist. Those all seemed like the defining things about who I was. Jews, I could see them around me. They went to synagogues and some of them even had like heavy black uh, coats and hats. And I didn't really think, oh, that's part of me because the, the difference in in practice and commitment was so total. Now, when I leave New York and visit my cousins in the, in the Midwest, sometimes I would be reminded of how Jewish I seem Mm. (laughs) and how much less exotic it was to me than it was to people who had, you know, in some cases only met a very few Jewish people. And this became part of my life that I accepted that I'm, of course I signify as Jewish and I'm embodying encoding in my, style and being and the shape of my nose and so forth. A lot of what people are looking for with their Judar, I send off a strong signal. And that in fact, of course, I'd absorbed obliquely a lot of lore and cultural style. But what is really true is that I don't have a trace of religious Judaism in me. I mean, I've been in a synagogue like three times in my life, Hmm. once for my mother's funeral, uh, because my grandmother uh, uncharacteristically suncharacteristically suddenly insisted that, that that is how my mother should be buried. But I didn't even think of that as her real funeral. The one we had at the Quaker meeting house where all her friends came, that felt to me like the actual one. So it's very much at a strange remove for me. Uh, but I've written as a Jew. <laughs> and this is where it becomes tricky. My, my friend, the very Jewish and very, very funny novelist, Josh Cohen, 
I actually just was sitting with him a few days ago and I was sort of giving the same spiel I just gave to you about how not Jewish I am. And he said, which of your protagonists isn't Jewish? <laughs> and it really threw me for a loop because I've only consciously made, you know, two or three of them Jewish. But then when he began to say, the only one I'm sure isn't is uh, Lucinda Hoke, the, the, um, the lead singer. I mean, the bass player in the band in You Don't Love Me Yet. And I suddenly was flabbergasted because it was like he was, he realized that I was writing as a Jew much more than I'd ever noticed. So, I'm interested in this like um, element of replacement that you sort of talk about with your grandmother. And I know that your Rose Zimmer character is in large part based on her. And lots and lots of that character. It comes pretty directly. And I kind of just want to ask, um, you know, is humor potentially um, replacing something for the Jewish people? You know, because in large part, my project's mm. on, on <laughs> Jewish humor. Yeah. Well, uh, power. I mean, you know, it's a subversive uh, irony is a, is a, a uh, if it's replacing something, it's replacing, um, you know, security and power, a privilege. I mean, we, you know, some of those things have, which have been attained more recently, but traditionally, I think early 20th century, mid 20th century Jewish humor is the, the power of the powerless. And I, um, you know, I'm really interested in Saul Bellow's work and, um, the, the, he had kind of like this element of displacement is sort of a through line throughout a lot of his novels. And I also was curious to hear your thoughts on if you think that's something that's inherently Jewish. Hmm. Well, I probably would lean towards seeing it as um, exemplified in Jewish life, but being a clue about human experience in its totality. I mean, uh, Bernard Malamud has this great enigmatic line that I always think about, which he says, where he says, all men are Jews. <laughs> and I don't he really, I've never completely understood what he meant, except I feel it in a way that he means um, Jews are just like the leading edge <laughs> for things that are innate. Um, I want to read you this joke from the opening page of this book that I'm using for my project. Okay. Um, uh, and hear your thoughts about it. Great. Um, Four Europeans go hiking together and get terribly lost. First, they run out of food, then out of water. I'm so thirsty, says the Englishman. I must have tea. I'm so thirsty, says the Frenchman. I must have wine. I'm so thirsty, says the German. I must have beer. I'm so thirsty, says the Jew. I must have diabetes. Um, <laughs> <That's good. laughs> I, this might be a bit of a leading question, but I'm just curious, you know, how do you define Jewish humor if you define it at all? Well, yeah, I mean, rueful, which is, <laughs> you know, the, for me, the great ingredient. And that's probably the thing I feel where I feel the most Jewish is in ruefulness, whether it's actually funny or, or only rueful, you know, the kind of self sabotaging, uh, excess of tragedy or self pity that it, that becomes its own, uh, uh, mockery or exhaust itself in absurdity. Um, the, the, the Jewish joke I think I see as the most emblematic is the, uh, 
the two rabbis who were traveling together and they are having a, um, a contest of humbleness out loud. And the, it was a step into a cab. One of them is saying, you are the great scholar and I am, I'm less than nothing compared to you. And the, no, no, it's you. You've attained so much learning and I, I'm, I'm less than nothing before, before the influence and, and, uh, subtlety of your knowledge. And, uh, the cab driver interrupts him and says, gentlemen, you're both extraordinarily accomplished men. Look at me. I am, I'm a taxi driver. I am less than nothing by comparison. And one of the rabbis turns to the other rabbi and says, look who thinks he's less than nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love it. Um, how important would you say is the novel to the history of Jewish humor? And um, do you think it could exist without Kafka? Mm, well, I mean, you know, uh, Kafka is, uh, he's an outlier. He, he becomes everyone's, you know, everyone bows to him and he becomes um, a talisman for, for so many subsequent writers but he wasn't working in a central tradition. You know, his, his speaking of ob- the word oblique, which I introduced, his way that he inflects Jewish thought or Jewish humor uh, into the space of his own writing is very uh, tricky um, and inflected. It's like a three bank shot off his his. Czechness and his Germanness and his, uh, you know, existential uh, isolation from tradition. Uh, you know, I mean, when you look at someone who conveys Jewish humor in its more primal traditional form into 20th century literature, I think you would want to look at someone like Isaac Babel on those terms, where the you know, it's a raw funnel funneling of folkloric and, uh, you know, peasant folk Yiddish, you know, theatrical, grotesque humor that just moves straight into the literary through a voice like Isaac Babel's. Whereas Kafka, it's a, from a very strange, lofty, alienated perch that, that, that trace elements of, you know, some of his Jewish sensibility uh come into the the literary but for that reason he belongs to everyone and not only to to jews um Um, and i I kind of want to just ask generally if you think a writer or an art an artist has do like you know has this obligation to their roots i mean um could they go about um doing their work and just never allude back to their ancestors in any way shape or form Um, and I mean, one way that I've encountered this is just, um, I've read a lot of Arthur Miller and I've Mm. sort of read a lot of, um, complaints that Willie Loman wasn't Jewish. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, you know, something that I would be probably most inclined to, to push back against by instinct is that, and in fact, it's the cloyingness of Jewish identification that 
has made me probably sometimes overstate my distance from it is the sort of claim, you know, which I grew up with. Uh, oh, that's Jewish. That belongs, you know, it's pretending to be free of this, but it's really, you know, uh, you know, which is almost like the cultural equivalent of those guys who would collar you on the street in New York city because they're looking for a minion and they, they'd just be asking, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? And if I said, not really, they'd say, is your mother Jewish? And I'd say, well, yes. And they'd say, then you're Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just this like stamp pad of the claim. And, you know, I mean, American identity is made up of these negotiations, the self inventions and reinventions where people have a, you know, uh, theatricalized or ironized or problematized relation to their source code. You know, everyone's sort of Irish American or Italian American or, or whatever it might be. And that's a kind of an argument embodied. Um, and you know, since Jewish life is about definitions and argumentation, I mean, trying to decide whether you're Jewish may be one of the most Jewish things you can do. Um, which is also the case in a way with Americanism, uh, turning yourself into an American is an, is, is American identity becoming. So I guess in that somewhere in that push and pull of future identities and the call of the freedom that comes with the, or the implicit freedom to self-invent that comes with, you know, the kind of modernist, secular American promise Nevertheless, there's the, you know, the pull of identity and, and, you know, I mean, this is, I think, why uh, Philip Roth speaks so much for so many people uh, his age and younger uh, who are not sure they want to have to care about, let's say, Israel, (laughs) you know, just because someone said that's your problem. Yeah. Um. The strength of my project largely depends on my interviews. And I was just wondering, because you've sat on both sides of the table so many times, um, if you know what you could tell me about the art or process of the interview as a means for conducting research. Well, I mean, I tend to be interviewed a lot, but it's most often for something a little thinner than the word research proposes. It's usually for kind of immediate consumption, you know, journalism to, to be slapped out there, whether in print or online or, or in a, in a radio booth. I mean, sometimes it's literally live. Um, I myself have not conducted research interviews. I have occasionally, I mean, I wouldn't say that I've done that or maybe once or twice, ironically with very good friends with whom I wanted to just go into a special space of memory retrieval and kind of pulling out parts of life that we've gone through together. So I turn on a tape recorder, but it's not really a, a specialty. And, and I, I haven't done it in a more traditional research sense, but I've occasionally been the subject of a more, you know, uh, literary historical kind of interviewing. I actually just recently agreed and I'll be doing uh, a bit tomorrow uh, to be interviewed for a project on uh, the Brooklyn literary world of the nineties and early aughts, which I guess I was close 
witness to and implicated in. Uh, and that's for a real research project. Um, I mean, the thing about interviews is how I, that I think about is just how they have a quality of, of staging that the, the terms and, and setting and, you know, I mean, you're, you're in the theater and you know how much context and even things like set dressing, uh, influence that, you know, that context creates a theater of nearly any moment. And there's, there's something of a negotiation, but also a collaboration in, in the, the most interesting interviews where, um, I sense the, the terms and there, there's kind of a transfer of, um, contextual creative energy going on between the two people. I mean, otherwise you might as well just, uh, you know, submit answers and, and, and I'd write, I'd, I'd write replies, but I actually find that that's, even though I'm a writer and I can c control that situation. And of course, apart from just the laziness that makes, makes me want to evade written tasks, um, that that's the least interesting kind of interview because it, dodges the the theatrical energy mm. the, the invention or collaboration that can occur um you mentioned in class sort of your discovery of um some of the misogyny or whatever um to call it in philip k dick novels mm -hmm. and i was just wondering you know what you do or like what should someone do with art they enjoy that in some ways makes them uncomfortable. I mean, first of all, most art of any value whatsoever makes you uncomfortable in a number of ways. <laughs> uh, in the long run, the more you think about it, and even things that might seem to go down pretty easily, like a, a great romantic comedy by Ernst Lubet, Lubitsch or Howard Hawks, if you really abide with it it's it's strange and can make you uncomfortable too and you know i mean what can you do except make it specific investigations there's no, there's no really handy uh general tool for picking these things up there's your particular attention to historicizing context to biographical context to you know whether or not self-awareness and self-critique enters into the flow. And then, you know, ultimately there are other things you'll want to examine and put back down and say, no, thank you. You know, but that's the process and it's utterly individual to relationships between, you know, uh, potential readers or viewers or whatever it might be and the, the stuff that's available. Um, how does a, a writer have or receive permission to hit certain notes in their work? Um, you know, whether that be stereotypes, um, locations and time or place, um, you know, historical periods like the Holocaust. Um, is it sort of a question of generation or a question, a question of cultural remove, or is it a complex, comp a complex combination of a lot of things? I think it's a comp. Uh, definitely a combination of a lot of things that are very hard to pick apart again, using any kind of general or sweeping 
description. But the one thing you can say is that we're at a time of uh, active reframing of some of the ways that authority is constructed in literary artworks, as well as the way authority is constructed in outside of them. And so there are distinct elements of anxiety that are, that are a signature of our moment. They can be worked with and through. They can even be exploited for energetic purposes, but they're certainly in the foreground right now. They're not passive. Hmm. What about permission to laugh at certain things? Um, and, you know, so one of the ideas kind of I got from this book is that laughter can kind of be channeling something, um, can be channeling blame um, or guilt. And I'm just curious what you think about um, needing, per if, if someone needs permission to laugh at a Holocaust joke. Well, I suspect that it's more extensive than just that, that laughter or humor might passingly sometimes encode guilt or blame or, or remorse or anxiety, especially anxiety. Um, I think it's in a embrace to the death with these things and that the transgressiveness is actually, however explicit or prominent, it's at the heart of the, you know, experience of humor, which is that it's a constant management of, you know, anxiety, surprise, discomfort in different ways. And so, uh, again, the, it seems to me the discomfort is baked in. Um, why do you think that we joke about painful experiences and can you imagine a reality um, in which we never joked about them at all? Well, uh, it's very hard to imagine except in some sort of, you know, pre-linguistic kind of animal life. And it might be why the suffering or loneliness of an animal seems more desolating than the human at times is that the equipment of, you know, ruefulness or irony or the solidarity generated by, you know, uh, reducing tragedy to, to kvetching isn't, isn't available. Mm -hmm. I see humor sort of as a way of coping with, you know, painful, tragic, potentially traumatic situations. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you think that, I mean, you know, really any, anyone who's dealing with, um, pain or trauma in their work. Um, but you know, also Jews, do you think that they came to comedy for this reason? Or do you think that comedy kind of finds them? Oh, I think it's more, uh, innate and, uh, you know, it's not as mechanistic as that description, the, the offerings in that description that, that there's a one way flow or that these things are kind of, you know, one is a tool brought to bear upon the other in some articulated sense. I think they, they grow together in the human psyche. 
I'm also just kind of curious, this is a bit unrelated, but Bello um, sort of distinguishes between laughter and trembling. And I think I sort of see it as like, you know, they're polar opposites. Um, and he thinks that laughter is the mind referring us to God's existence. And I'm wondering, especially for, you know, with fiction writers, um, do you think that um, you can sort of immediately tell um, if a fiction writer um, believes in God or if they intend huh. for their characters to believe in God? Very interesting. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I feel like that question pulls me out of my area of expertise. I'm a little God deaf. I mean, I really, that is something that I'll never really have access to. And for that reason, I've probably denied my characters access to it. And in fact, I may be, uh, oblivious to the sound of a believing character when I meet one as a reader. I mean, in, in, I was thinking about this, not in terms of Judaism, but in terms of Christianity, because of Dostoevsky's Christianity and how I manage it when I'm reading Dostoevsky, <laughs> what, what I do with it, which is pretty much just, uh, correct for the signal, you know, and ignore it and how, you know, utterly that would seem an abuse of Dostoevsky's intention to, to him probably, uh, if he was, if he had access to my, you know, my reading protocols, <laughs> but, um, it's the best I can do. This is a bit of a broad question, but I'm, I'm also wondering, you know, to what extent do you think of your reader in terms of, you know, whatever labels as you're writing, um, if that makes sense, like, you know, does it affect you to know, um, that, you know, a lot of people would see your work as characteristically Jewish? Um, no, I mean, it kind of, because of my, you know, what I think some people would diagnose as a kind of congenital, uh, blind, deliberate blindsiding, uh, I was surprised, interested, um, sometimes, uh, disconcerted by the way the Fortress of Solitude was taken as a Jewish American novel. And then again, I shouldn't have been, but, um, it didn't seem to me a, the essential way to read that book, but I realized, of course, I made it, uh, an important ingredient. And, um, and then the idea that I was kind of categorically joining a, uh, a tradition or a, or a, a sub field of the literary, uh, just seemed like a, a misapprehension to me. I, I, I've always felt that I wrote outside of boxes. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. That's all I got. Sure. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's Jonathan Lethem. If you're interested in checking out more of his work, he actually had a book come out very recently published in hardback on November 6th. That's The Feral Detective. Really interesting book. I'm also a big fan of The Fortress of Solitude and Motherless Brooklyn, which is actually being adapted into an Ed Norton film that will come to theaters next year. And if you're interested in that Rose Zimmer character we were talking about, she comes from his novel Dissident Gardens. 
That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Particles, for the music, and talk to you next time, everybody.